Greetings and welcome to the Afrofuturist Podcast. I am your host, Ahmed Best. Thank you for joining us. Really appreciate you. Today's interview is with someone that I had a wonderful time talking to. Her name is Meili Koo, and she is VP of Design at Khan Academy, and she formerly was with Apple. And Meili's story is so incredibly rich and interesting because she brings not only her culture and her love of culture to the table at Khan Academy and at Apple, but she also brings the love of movement and dance. And she has this wonderful ability to deconstruct dance into forms in which she can turn into either computer code or mathematics and integrate into applications, ideas, and things that you can actually tangibly use on your desktop computer every day. She brings this acumen to Khan Academy as well. Meili is such a wonderful fountain of information, especially when it comes to the inner workings of corporations in Silicon Valley. And oftentimes when someone like her or someone who looks like her uh, of Asian descent and female as a woman, she is underrepresented in a lot of these rooms. And we talk a lot about how a lot of the times we are the only, either the only woman in the room or the only Asian woman in the room or the only Asian American woman in the room. Um, and how overcoming that challenge is, is really difficult because when you don't have the numbers, you know, when, you, there, when there aren't enough people in the room to back you up, the fight gets harder, right? And Meili is one of those people who looked at the fight, took the fight head on and succeeded. She brings her love of dance and she brings her love of movement and she brings her love of culture in every room that she comes in. Her energy is wonderful and infectious. Um, and she is just a fantastic resource, a fantastic mind and a wonderful designer to have the opportunity to speak with. So please, please, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed doing it. Please give your attention to Meili Koo. The future. One of the reasons why I'm so obsessed with the future is because, you know, growing up black and constantly being othered in this country, we're only thinking about the present, you know? We have this, all right, how are we going to eat today type of attitude when it comes to what mm. we're doing rather than mm. going we don't have agency over 20 years from now and we have the ability as human beings and the capacity as human beings to conceptualize 20 years from now you know we're the only as far as i know you know animal that can do that for right yeah. now you know yeah so yeah why are we so caught up in the here and the now we can do both. We can conceptualize the future and try to find a way to enhance it and craft it as well as living in the present and enjoying the moment. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that being able to envision the future and sort of exercise your imagination that way obviously not only helps you survive a bit longer, right? Because you've got purpose to each moment that's leading that direction. Um, but it's also like uh, can help you ma- create it. <laughs> but, yeah, really. Um, yeah, really yeah. and truly. Um, yeah. We kind of just jumped right in, which is great. Which is what <laughs> I love um, because um, it, it it really is. I really want to hear a lot about you. And there's just so many things that you do that I find just wonderful and interesting. Um, Meili Koo and I really would love to find out how you did it um, and I had this one question here's my here's my opening question and, and forgive me um, if you've answered a question like this before but because of how you came to do what you're doing and how you found it through dance if, if I correct if it's saying that um is dance design hmm. i love your question <laughs> that's amazing um yeah what an what an inspiring question um there are a lot of commonalities to dance and design 
Um, I think it's hard for people to see it, those connections. Um, but I think that dance or really like any kind of physical practice has, again, kind of sort of for the same reasons of, uh, who knows, some combination of colonialism and puritanical traditions. I'm not sure how, but the, just the physical realm in general, I find to be weirdly compartmentalized from a lot of the other um, subjects that we talk about. So people aren't, aren't drawing those connections as much as I feel like I, I draw them. Um, but as a, as an exercise that combines, or I mean, it is exercise, but I mean, as, as, as an activity that combines creativity and, um, precision and discipline together, like there's this constant movement between, um, being creative and being expressive, but also having the discipline to execute and the strength to follow through, to do the kinds of exercises that allow you to actually execute dance in a way that's that's better um i think that is a, a similar thing to design um in design you know there is a certain amount of um of subjectivity right that's constantly going on and at the same time you also have to just have technique <laughs> so is a creative pursuit they're similar there's other types of things where I think like if you put on a performance or if you create an experience with dance or with design, you need to think about a lot of the details between the scenes. Like how is a dancer getting on and off the stage? How are we transitioning between songs? Like all of those types of things matter um, just as, uh, as they do in design, right? Like if somebody's coming to, a to an experience that's been designed for them the first time, or if you're switching between screens, you need to think about those transitions. Like what are those moments that we're doing and how do I help somebody who's experiencing them make sense of them? So there's a, there's a lot of commonalities. Um, I think that, you know, once you've got a really strong lens on the world, it's kind of hard not to see everything through it. So <laughs> I'm going to acknowledge that too. Right. Um, as far as like how I came to things through dance, I, I think it's interesting. I feel very strongly about myself as a, as a practicing dancer, you know, whether or not I've been actively doing it or not, it feels like um, something I've always been able to come back to. And, you know, an experience of having worked in, um, you know, I've, I've worked in various aspects of technology over the last 20 plus years. And I think that um, the ability to go and dance and get back in my body, interact with other people in, in a way that's that, that physical has really been my survival mechanism. Um, not only because it's, um, it's kind of like a, a, a mind eraser, like you can't perseverate while you're that focused on dancing well, you need to just get in it. <laughs> um, but I, but also because of the demographics, I think that, you know, like I've just been overwhelmingly in a white male space for so much of my life. And, you know, thankfully I could leave, go into a dance studio and be primarily surrounded by women of color. So that was, that was the other reason that to be frank with you, it was coping mechanism. Right. Um, and I'm now like trying to figure out ways to kind of go do the reverse, which is um, figure out ways to bring this language, because dance is a language, like design is a language, um, back into the spaces where I have felt always a bit like an alien um, and kind of say, well, you know, here's this thing. This is, this is how we do. Right. <laughs> now you try it. <laughs> now you get to be uncomfortable for a little while in our way of doing things. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and notice that you have bones. <laughs> yeah. And not just sits bones. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So um so that's been my fun little fun little subversion um you know cuz I I feel like you know we were given all, to varying degrees, you know, varying degrees of ability, but we were all given this amazing biological organism that supports everything else that we do and I feel like spending way too much time only in our minds and not connecting with the rest of ourselves is just like doing a disservice to what's been given to us, which I think is so precious. Um, so yeah, 
I, <laughs> yeah. As far as like some of the stuff we were talking about earlier about like how we, while we get here and something that's super formative. When I was talking about that book of showing this one reality yeah. and, um, and then my experience of, of my own experience and the family experience and all, all of these kinds of things that I'm talking about where the world is telling you one thing, but either in your family or your family's history, like, you know, another, I think that's like probably one of the things that's really made me so driven to try and do something about it. And I think very much like, like what you were talking about, as far as thinking about the future, it's like, wait a second, you're telling me one thing. But I know that's not actually a full picture. Why am I only seeing that full picture in these tiny corners of my life? And it's not really what everybody else is hearing about, right? I think if you grow up like that, it just changes everything about your relationship with the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I agree. And, you know, you're talking about in these just white male dominated spaces. And, you know, I, I was watching... Uh, uh, a talk that you did and you talked about how you would spend your day at Apple and then go dance and then try to wash the glitter off your face and go back to Apple. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which I thought was phenomenal um, because you don't really picture people working at Apple trying to wash the glitter off their faces. And I thought that was just an amazing image. Like I just really like that. But was there a time where you went to Apple and were just like, you know what? I'm not going to wash the glitter off my face. I'm actually this person and you have to deal with it. And not only do you have to deal with it, but here are some ideas from my world that are going to make this world, you know, a little bit more mine. Was yeah, there a moment? No, what was that moment? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, I think there's a couple of them and they happened in usually tiny little subversive ways, which I think that, you know, that's another thing about the way I work is like, there's nothing, if you, if there's a tiny thing in your life that will make you laugh, that's like a tiny little creative intervention, then just do it. Why not? Like we don't make time for those things, but everything doesn't have to be, you know, there's something that we did one time. We had this amazing collection of homies, you know, homies. Yeah. yeah. The little, yeah. A little collection of them, and we knew that there was an area where, like, it would be fun to leave a funny little like sculpture of them, like, just in a place in the palm. <laughs> we just left like this arrangement of our homies collection, and sure enough, when we passed by a little later on to check on it, like, people had like picked out homies to like bring home, <laughs> you know, little things like that. Um, I don't, there's there definitely multiple moments so. I'll, I'll start kind of with like the ones that seem larger and potentially more obvious and then kind of work my way back. But towards the end of the time that I was there, um, <clears throat> I was definitely helping um, invent, orchestrate, you know, put together, choreograph, whatever you want to call it, these demos that would go to the executive team, right? And so just to give people a little background about my role in the second half of my time there, I was working in a, a, a small group. It was called HID Prototyping. And our job was to take the brand new um, methods of human input or interpretations of human input signal, so like some any kind of sensor that a machine might have, and come up with future uh, user interfaces or user experiences um, that a customer would, ex would get to play with um, or use later on. So an easy example of that is like Force Touch or the Taptic Engine. Those are the types of things we worked on. And, um, but oftentimes I would wind up being the only woman in the room when we demoed or the only not white person or both. Um, and, uh, I decided because of, after so many years of trying to like fit in corporate America, blah, blah, all that stuff. I was like, there's no hope in hell for me to fit in. Right. People always think I'm the receptionist and there's nothing wrong with being the receptionist, but I think that they thought I was a receptionist because of the way that I look. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to just be in your face about it. So I would wear the biggest fucking earrings I could find, like big, loud earrings. If I had a loud feminine outfit, loud feminine outfit, my nails were always done like loud as can be. And then I would wear like knuckle rings, just all of the, you know, everything that was like, you know what? Nah, this is me. 
and yes, deal with it. <laughs> so it wasn't full, like, you know, glitter and feathers because I think that would have been too much. Right. But, um, but the rest of it was very deliberately like, you know what? I wrote the code for this and I, this was my idea or this was like me and my partner's idea on this team and I contribute here and I look the way I look and you're going to get used to it. That was definitely deliberate. I think some people go into like a hardware organization where everybody's like wearing, you know, t-shirts and carefully chosen t-shirts and carefully chosen jeans, mind you, but it's all kind of a uniform that everybody has silently agreed to. (laughs) Chambre button down shirts from Taylor Stitch, union made jeans and loafers. I could pick out all the stores in San Francisco where all of these guys got their clothes and sometimes they'd show up in that same shirt. And I was like, there's no, I just can't, that's not me. So I just got loud. <laughs> and sometimes the execs would want, I had one, I still remember one VP. He's like, those are the largest earrings I have ever seen. <laughs> and I was like, wow, you need to leave the suburbs more. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and um, I try to remember what else sometimes I would get a comment on the knuckle rings. They'd be like, oh, man, like, should I be scared? I'm like, yeah, a little. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So those are those are two. Um, is this the kind of thing that you're that you're asking? Yeah, because yeah. here's what I'm getting at. And and um, I would love you to expand on this as well, because what what we're talking about is code switching. Right. And this yes. is what we have to do all the time as being all the, time. the others, you know what I mean? As being from different cultures and trying to integrate with the money culture, right? Because that's what corporate America is. Corporate America Correct. is the money yeah. culture, right? So we are constantly in this state of code switching. We're constantly in this state of having to behave in one way when we're in corporate America and having to behave the other way when we're around people in our tribes, right? And it's very rare that the two are able to meet. And I think what's so very special about you and what you've done is you've literally written code that code switched, right? (laughs) You turned your life code into into a language that we all use every day, you know, and it's it's one of those wins that I think needs to be talked about, you know, because just like you said, everybody thought you were a receptionist because of the way you looked. That is not a question. Right. And. Mm -hmm. Like you said, no disrespect to the receptionist, but that is not your job. You wrote the code, right? And the influence of your life outside of corporate America is what influenced your code, right? Mm. And it's not just your code of conduct as, you know, Meili Koo in the office, but it was also what you were writing. Like, for example, you said you put your Technics 1200s into everybody's iPhone. On everybody's desktop, right? On everybody's desktop, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. That is an example of you literally code switching, right? And (laughs) and and it's really it's really incredible. What were some of the other things that you feel kind of made their way into Apple from um, your outside corporate America life? Oh, fun! Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the Technics was definitely one of them, just getting some vinyl on our desktop. Um, I get so happy when I see people using that avatar. It's great. Um, I think another one is, um, you know, the early face effects, uh, were, they were silly, and there were pink hearts in them. I think that was like, you know, at the time when it, was, it just felt like it was a bunch of guys. It was all guys all the time. And, um, you know, this is before the face Snapchat face filters, et cetera. But, uh, yeah, people having hearts flying out of their heads. I think that's like one, another one of those heartwarming moments for me, realizing that I just forced a bunch of guys to sit around a conference room table with hearts flying out of their heads and say, shall we ship this one? Yeah, I guess we can ship this one. Right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think that's another one. Um, 
I think some of the other stuff that happened was a little bit more in process rather than shipped out. Um, and like, I was kind of talking about these silly interventions, like, uh, when we were first considering some of the force touch stuff, I took a ball of Play-Doh and photographed it at various levels of squish. Um, and then hooked it up to the force sensor so that when you push down harder, the Play-Doh ball just looked more squished on your screen. Um, and that just, you know, it led to a bunch of other riffing that we did in the team. And, um, you know, it was just silly, but it's, it's the deliberate subversion of like very serious business all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, to your point, I think, I think that a lot, and I, I was guilty of this. I think when I started as a, as an intern, when you go into that space and you're the only one, you think you need to try and fit in yes. and try and be that. And I think what I realized over the years is that that's you, you can't like the, the reason that it's awesome that you're there is because you are you and you're different. Yes. And while you need to be able to like, I'm, you, I'm sure everybody's tired of hearing the like, well, you have to be five times as good, right? Like you, you have to, your shit has to be like buttoned up and rock solid when it comes to a bunch of the technical stuff um, as much as possible. And to be clear, nobody uh, that's innovating knows what they're doing completely because that's the entire point of innovating is that you're standing on the precipice looking out over the horizon and nobody has the answers. Um, so that's really important for people to know because I think a lot of people don't, don't realize that they think somebody somewhere has the answer. And what I realized being in that room with a bunch of people or being in the room with um, even the bunch of the executives is that you get, you walk all the way to the edge and you look out and nobody knows the answer, right? You're making it. That's the exciting part. And, um, and if you're in there, like, don't, don't assume that there's some sort of like magical ivory tower authority that's decided what's next. Like, no, 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 <laughs> now that's you. <laughs> And you can make it what you want, or you should express it or envision it in whatever it is that you think is right, um, and and not follow what you think somebody else's right is. Right. Um, so, uh, in in also recognizing the difference and celebrating it, I mean, I think this it isn't easy, but at this historic moment, I think it's really important for people to be able to be themselves. And, and be deliberate about that. And, you know, if you're in a job interview or you're, you're, um, I think there's starting to be more and more places where if you acknowledge it, where you talk about it openly with, with people and say like, Hey, you know, I'm joining your team. And I recognize that I, I'm the only person that looks remotely like me on your team. Mm -hmm. Are you open to hearing my feedback about how I feel like an alien compared to so everybody else and that we have what we might be able to do better? Or are you looking for me to just act like nothing else is happening? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, not everybody has the, the privilege of that choice, but if you do, like if you've got multiple offers or something going on, like I think people should really be asking those questions. Um, I have a friend who's working in a space where she's in, she's the first and only, and, uh, they actually really value her pointing those things out, but that wasn't clear at the start. And so she just sort of suffered for a couple of months until she couldn't take it any longer and brought it up. And I think things have gotten a lot better since then. Hmm. So, but it's not, sometimes they're not so receptive. I'm sure as many people listening probably know, and you yourself know. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. Was there any moment where you were kind of afraid of this other life when it came to your your corporate life? Did did was there a time where you were just like, I better stop dancing? Um, I was a I think I was afraid of being disrespected for stupid reasons mm -hmm. in the corporate life. Um, I think oftentimes there's certain kinds of dance that people look down on as like be somehow they were weirdly associated with not being smart. <laughs> right. Like somehow if you do ballroom dance, like then it's fine. Like all, there's so many nerds in ballroom dance or like, you know, but yeah, um, it's the ballet versus African dance yeah. argument, you know, exactly. both require their specific technique, but one is considered 
you know, culturally and higher in, in oh, stat- status and which, stature. Which drives me, yeah, that drives me nuts also because I feel like having a foundation in West African dance allows you to access so many other kinds of dance. You have to get, it's, I see it as so equivalent in that it is, this is a foundation and there's technique and there's detail. And for some reason, everybody thinks that you're just like, people have this impression of it. Anyway, I have a friend who wrote, I think a master's or PhD thesis about this. So I'm not going to go on for too long, but I'm happy to give you her name. Um, <laughs> well, I do want to talk um, about um, your, your, I think you have uh, one of the best, um, I think you have a really fantastic ability to translate movement into math, to translate movement into engineering. Ah, uh, yeah. When when did that happen? Like, when did you realize that you can actually teach through, you can teach engineering through movement, you can teach math through dance? When did you recognize that? When did you realize that? And and. Was was that something that you came up with on your own? Were you influenced? Did you have a mentor? You know, what what was your journey there? You know, it's interesting that you're asking that way because I didn't realize that was something that was seen as a thing. Um, I think it kind of started. You know, if you're if you're referring to that, there's a there's a talk that I that I give. It's very experiential. Um, that that's kind of a demonstration of this. I think it kind of happened over time because when you animate things uh, or you, you write the code that makes things move, oftentimes if you're having a conversation with somebody else, you will move your hands to try and show them the movement that you're trying to create. And it's almost impossible to talk about it without seeing each other. Right. Um, I mean, you can, but it's it's not so simple. And I, I think when I started looking at easing curves, which is a, the term that you use for, um, and I'm saying this sort of more for, for the benefit of people listening. So if you, I think if you look up easings.net or if you look up easing curves, there's this, these like wonderful shows of the different um, kinds of movement where like you slow down and you speed up just at the end or you start really fast and then you sort of slowly coast into place. Um, all of that's math. And I think seeing seeing people's physical hand movements to try and explain those things and then also having to write the code to translate them just kind of brought that out. Um, and so that that's the one direction, right, where you've got somebody saying like, oh, I, I was kind of thinking it would move like this with a hand gesture and then like, you know, trying to write the code to, um, to make things move that way um, kind of led a little bit more naturally to thinking about things that that way more often maybe just because i spend a bunch of time like trying to get movements to happen as well as uh, on the screen as well as in, in real life <laughs> so i think it was just kind of there um and i drew the connection but then i, I there are a couple of other uh corners uh, or like disparate pieces that came together i think one of one of them was me being annoyed that people were calling this like um this animation on the iOS home screen where the little icons shake and get ready to be deleted. Like people, there was somebody who called it a hula dance and that I just got annoyed because I've danced hula and it doesn't look like that. Um, so like I wound up with like a, a, a talk that I give sometimes with like a 20 minute rant just about, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's not hula. I have a friend as, as a side note, I have a friend from Hawaii and uh-huh. he teaches hula. And, uh-huh. um, you know, he and I, we do martial arts together. He's a great, he's a dancer, martial artist, you know, uh, painter, one of those guys who's just a polymath, can do all this stuff. And he teaches hula. And um, <laughs> your talk about hula reminded mm-hmm. me of he and I having just a two-hour conversation on how what even people in Hawaii that think that they're watching hula in the hotels is not hula. And he was he he actually showed me like authentic traditional Hawaiian hula, and it hurts like it's hard, <laughs> you know. It's not just um, cats in Hawaiian shirts and ukuleles kind of 
you know, move, waving their arms to to soft rhythms and, and waves crashing. It, it's like a fight almost. It feels like martial arts. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you were talking about how people were calling that Sheikh Hula and you having such a huge problem with it, that's one of those things that I don't think people really appreciate um, when it comes to being specific, when it comes to being, um, and not only specific, but respect, respect for culture, you know? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, let alone what is culture. <laughs> Absolutely. You know? And it's almost yeah. this fact of, well, I was in a hotel once, and it was entertaining to me, and these people did this thing called hula, and that's what that looks like to me. It's like, no, that's, that is actually disrespectful to say, you know? Yeah. And you need and no, to be specific uh, about it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because it's like even if people can't buy into the idea that they're being disrespectful, they should at least buy into the the idea that they're being wrong, like simply inaccurate. <laughs> like you're just not actually right. Right, um, right. Well, you know. But I'm, yeah, I mean, I feel absolutely, like it, absolutely. Go on. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so it, it, in addition to that that piece, there was also like, um, let's see. Uh, my own personal fascination with anatomy, the connection between anatomy, mechanical engineering, math and math and regular engineering and code. I think all of those things just kind of, they're all, as a dancer, I'm a body nerd. Um, as a nerd, I'm a nerd. <laughs> um, and just like trying to find those pieces is, is kind of how this dropped out. I, I don't, know whether or not it's a thing but if i were if i was like if i ruled the world um but i wouldn't actually put it that way but if i if i had a chance for to to experiment with other ways for people to engage with math and engineering more especially with kids i think about how little we actually talk about bodies and i don't understand why because we all know that as kids are growing up like they're learning how to be in their bodies and be in the world and we just kind of like jump over all of that and expect it to magically happen. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it just, it feels weird to me. I'm like, this must be like a weird vestige of a culture that didn't want to engage with bodies. Yeah. I because... mean, I think a lot of it has to do with, <laughs> you know, this puritanical idea that the body is, you know, unclean. It's a, it's a sin to have any type of attention towards the bodies. And I think it's a very Western thing. You know, yeah, what I mean? like in, in in all these other parts of the world, this idea of hip movement and it being related to fertility and it being related to having children and, and creating children um, is something that's just a part of life. And um, in the Western world, it's it's really taboo. It's really, you know, it's it's a thing that nobody wants to deal with. And um just in my own experience, uh, from growing up playing in African dance classes and, and watching, you know, all of that movie. You know, my mother is a drummer and my mother would play for dance classes and I would play with her and then she would go dance and I would play. And I was just watching it and it never seemed salacious to me. It never seemed like risque to me. And it was only until I moved to the suburbs um, out in New York City that I discovered that, oh, wait a minute, people think about this differently and they don't move that way. And that influences everything. It influences the way they learn. It influences the way they speak. It influences the way they believe about culture in the rest of the world. And yeah. um, it, it really it really shades the thinking, you know? And when you don't think like that, possibilities open up, experiences yeah, open yeah. up, and you have this ability to, to, to be multidimensional. And absolutely, when it comes to thinking, like with you, what happens? Like, what comes first? Does a movement come first, and then does it translate into something that you want to see and something that you want to feel, and then translates into? making the thing because you you have this you know skill and this experience that is so incredibly unique and it it would be great to know how you think like what's your thought process what's your process in general for coming up with stuff oh interesting 
Um, man, I, I, I wish I could give you like a clean answer, but I feel it sometimes like I'm just kind of a ball of chaos. <laughs> what I try and do is carry, I always carry my notebook. I get sad if I don't have my notebook. Actually, I feel kind of anxious if I don't have my notebook. And um, as things come up, um, I'll just jot them down or I'll draw them or I'll doodle. That's definitely a part of the process. If it's kind of a more goal-oriented thing, then I will brainstorm. Just, you know, sticky note brainstorm. Let's, like, get as many ideas out. Wild ideas are great, you know. Um, draw. you got to draw. You can't just, like, write words on sticky notes. you got to put the drawings in there. That gets to the other part of your brain. Um, and you're doing it standing. I think that helps. Um, just like thinking about work environments and how sedentary they are. I try and like, if I have control over a room, I will try and put mixed level seating in there, put boards up and make sure that people are going to get up and move around. People will naturally express themselves more physically, um, in order to do that. When it comes to like the translating things into like movement on a screen or something like that, I kind of try and start with like the simplest thing possible. Um, depending on what I'm, what I'm trying to do. Um, you know, again, if it's goal oriented, then I try and cut things into pieces, like cut images into pieces and just move them around and have that, um, you know, play with the math to move them around. Um, but if I'm just like playing with the, with the code to see what happens, oftentimes I'll just like search around until I find something that's, that does something neat. Um, or usually I'll just come across it for some reason and then just grab the code and play with it and see what happens. And that, I think, is probably one of the best ways to learn. Um, you know, take something and, and just hack it or play with it and build upon it to see what happens. It's less intimidating than trying to start from scratch. Right. Um, so I think that's how I did a bunch of it, yeah. I, I'd say per your, per your earlier question about, like, what sort of set the bed for or, or the, the setting, the background for all of this kind of connectedness, I would say that I, I'd, I'd be... I should give credit to um, my parents also for being very multidisciplinary. And um, my father was a, a martial arts master, actually, and also spoke a lot about both spirituality and physical movement in scientific terms. Which martial so, art was it? Uh, Wing Chun, Kung Fu. Word. Yeah. So he's um, he was actually, uh, his uh, Kung Fu master was taught by Yip Man. So he's on the family tree there. Who was his master? Uh, Wang Qiu. Oh, right on. Wang Qiu in the Netherlands, yeah. What were some of the things that he said that influenced you? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some of like the most wonderful nerdy things that my father said. Oh, I love it. Bring <laughs> it. Bring it. So um, when he first met my, my partner, um, we brought him to Buddhist temple in, in Richmond, B.C. There's a big, there's a big temple there in my... My father was trying to explain, my, my partner's from, a, um, he's from Latin America, he's from Colombia. Um, so, and which my father knows is kind of a Catholic country, religion wise. And so my father said, you know, um, oftentimes in Western thought, things are good or evil, they're black or white. And, um, you know, in Buddhism and in the East, we know things are not like that. We know things are more of a continuous signal. Um, and you can try and approximate a continuous signal with a discrete signal, but you don't actually get the same quality of sound or the same quality of signal. <laughs> it's like you can apply transforms once you've got a digital, you know, a digital version <laughs> yeah. to get back to the analog version, but you've definitely lost some of that richness. <laughs> and so that was one of the metaphors that he that he's given that really stuck with me. And it's I think it's very true. Um, I think dichotomous thinking leads to a lot of problems. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> 100%. And, and it's so interesting that you're talking about your father influencing you in this way, because for for me talking to you, it just makes so much sense um, how you see things. Right. Because. And, and, and again, from from what I was researching about you and, and, and um finding out about you is you, you just have this amazing ability to translate, right? You can really uh, take a code and make it oh, yeah. understandable. Yeah. And it seems yeah, like it's, it's been this innate thing with you for your, for your <laughs> life. I think it also comes from being from so many cultures. I'm, I'm 
quattro cultural at least maybe like i don't know what do you call it when it gets to five pentacultural what what are the cultures what are the cultures your cultural influences cultural influences so i meant i have ancestry in both indonesia and china um so um and you know there's 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 plenty going on even there because the part of china that we we're from was southeastern china which is where a lot of the uh, there was a lot of traffic <laughs> there are lots of comings and goings um and then from indonesia uh central java more specifically um the netherlands which is where i was born so for anybody with like an international colonial history lens you will know that story immediately and uh i guess for others it's just you know holland colonized indonesia so when the violence went down in the mid 60s um my parents uh, were were among those who left, lived in Germany and then Holland. And then I was born in Holland, grew up in Western Canada. Um, Canada at that point in time had just, just five years earlier, I think, instituted multiculturalism as policy, which if you haven't read Canadian multicultural policy, I think it's from 1973. Um, it's a I love this piece of writing. I It sounds so future, even today. And it was written in the 1970s. So that's a fun one for people to go geek out on if you haven't read it. It definitely talks about how we can embrace differences um, It's and uh, and be, you know, one, one united but not um, uh, monocultural nation. Um, just amazing forward-looking piece and so my education in Canada was also very multicultural um because I was in Vancouver oh Vancouver in Vancouver yeah Yeah. so Vancouver at the time that I was there uh there were a lot of Iranians there were a lot of people coming in from Hong Kong and Taiwan a lot of people from the Punjab um from a lot of Punjabis um and so you know I grew up dancing Pangra and (laughs) um uh, you know, and eating cr- crunchy rice and having tea with dates and um, going for dim sum every weekend. So, you know, Canada and its multiculturalism policy also just give us a lot of space to to play. Um, my second or third grade teacher had spent part of her time growing up in Kenya, but also had Scottish origins. So she brought in haggis and we all tried haggis and the entire school celebrated Chinese New Year, Robbie Burns Day, Diwali, like everything. We celebrated everything. That's so It was dope. like someone in the school has a holiday. Cool. Like let's like the aunties were in there with food and we were all celebrating. Oh, that's, so <laughs> that's amazing. So, um, yeah, so I grew up in that kind of like, um, the, the multicultural utopian sort of policy of that era of Canada. Um, and then moved to Boston, um, where I went to school. I think it was around that time that my, my, I had a best friend who was from Uruguay. And then shortly after school, I married into a Colombian family. So um, that would be probably the last culture that I have now for like 20 years been, or so roughly, been pretty close to. So, um, so I'm, you know, I'm fluent in Spanish and uh, it's funny. I actually, there's a Colombian woman from Cali, Colombia, on my on the design team at Khan Academy, and she jokes and says that I'm more Colombian than her, and I joke that she's more Chinese than me. So <laughs> she watches all the Chinese soap operas, and um, yeah, sometimes I'll like bring her the so- the ahi that I've like made at home. So that's um, amazing. So, but I think that growing up with my family, like my aunts and uncles, and everybody would usually they spoke in a mix of three different languages. Um, and so I always had to learn how to kind of half intuit what people were saying, because usually one of those three languages was one that I didn't really speak. Um, and some of the things they were trying to say were things they weren't really sure how to say. Um, and everybody had crossed so many, you know, they'd immigrated so many times or, you know, between generational differences and cultural differences, I just had to, in order to survive, navigate so many different codes. Um, and then when I was in college, like I am so grateful to all of the friends that I made like freshman year, um, all the way through, um, who taught me a lot about U.S. history and especially the, the history of, you know, like all of the different people who live in the U.S., whether they were like, you know, my Chicano friends that had grown up in Oakland or East L.A., <laughs> you know, or, or my black friends that had grown up in like, you know, Philly or Atlanta or Houston or, you know, Florida, just everybody kind of coming together and me having a chance to really hang out and learn 
a lot about specifically American history, I think was like another place where I got to frankly kind of use my foreignness to come in and be like, huh, tell me about things. Um, and learn so much without the baggage of having grown up in it in a way. I mean, um, almost kind of coming in like a little bit of an anthropologist after having to do that for my own family. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I hope that doesn't sound too touristy because no, it, it didn't feel touristy. It felt very connected. But um, no, it's it sounds like you have just this incredible love for learning, you know, and love oh, yeah. for culture and experience. For culture. for culture, yeah, definitely culture and experience for sure. Absolutely. I mean, um, I'm I'm obsessed with culture. Obsessed. Me with too. Around you know, <laughs> the world, and I, you know, it's the same thing. Like, I really want to feel everybody's culture you know i really want to feel what what that's like and um even when it comes to the um cyber culture even when it comes to online culture and you know hearing that you've influenced these things that ended up on everybody's desktop i think it makes the cyber culture richer you know and, and now we get to have an experience that we otherwise wouldn't have had unless you were in the room, you know, and that and that has touched all of us without anybody even saying, you know, mainly coup. And, and, and it's really uh, it's, I'm I'm better for it, you know, and I think we all are. But that 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 thirst for culture, is that what brought you to Khan Academy? Ah, no, that's an interesting question. I think that, um, not, not really. I don't, I I think the, the Khan Academy was kind of two things. Um, one was, um, you know, having lived on the other side of the mainstream narrative. Yeah. Um, it is deeply important to me to be working towards equity in some way. I, how, how can I contribute? How can I contribute? How can I help? you know, joyfully subvert a bunch of these norms that have left a bunch of us out. uh, And I think have left us with a less rich existence because of it. How, what do I do to help make that better? Because I think that the, the average human experience of like daily life could be so much richer if we lived it differently. And I don't think it's going to get there with a monoculture. So how do I help more people have access to that. How do I help more people be the inventors and the contributors and the people who are like envisioning and making the future happen? Because I think that we wouldn't be like tied down to uh, tiny screens, like barely moving, just consuming stuff and like, you know, turning our eyeballs into advertising dollars. I don't think that's the future we want. I think we want, you know, something else that's much more vibrant, like interconnected where there's, you know, cultural things going on and people are, uh, feeling loved and supported and part of communities, um, you know, in ways that are healthy and, uh, you know, all of these and, and having fun and having like a great time with their, with their bodies and being able to have health, not be this thing that you take care of on the side, but something that you, that's just part of everything all of the time. And in, in a, in a way that's like sustained and not reactionary, like there's just so many things that we could be doing differently, but it's like, if we don't, if people aren't, Ha- and people don't have a seat at the table if like you know especially black and brown folks don't have a seat at the table and are not creating that future knowing that there are things that people in the mi- in the mainstream culture may be blind to um i just like i don't feel like we're, we're gonna get to as fun of a world <laughs> you know it's yeah. fun and healthy of a world and i want us to get there so i think we need different people at the table and that's part of why like working in education is so motivating to me because I am looking to, to do that, to like level the playing field, bring other people into the fold and have it be fun. You know, there's like a, a selfish, selfish aspect to it for me too, is that like, I don't want to feel like I'm going into work and like landing on a different planet of styrofoam every Monday morning. Right? Like there's no fun. Right. <laughs> um, and I don't want to have to like give up the things that are interesting to me just because there's like nobody in a demographic that I like, can you know speak to on a dance floor with in the room or 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 whatever other you know vector we want to pick of it but um 
so I, I also want that to be a thing. Or if it's not for me, then it's for like the next the next generation, you know, <laughs> like. Yeah. Um, so really, it's from the standpoint of equity that's driven me to, to go to Khan Academy. I think there's also an intellectual fascination with what like interactions can bring to um, to learning, because I think that like learning by doing things um, and being active um, is a really interesting area of potential. Um, and, uh, and frankly, Khan Academy, I think from a cultural standpoint, um, when it comes to any company where technology is built, his is just very, very conscious and introspective and iterative. So, um, I think that there's a lot of prop, I don't know, propaganda might be the wrong word. There's a lot of sort of like oblivious, good intentions going on in technology, um, and I feel like Khan Academy is more, a little more evolved than a lot of the places that I, um, than other places that I've been to. So, um, and I, I felt like I could have a hand in kind of creating that culture because of the, the nature of the place. So that was like another thing that attracted me to Khan Academy was that the, the people and felt like a place of healing as well, a little bit for me to be frank, where, um, I didn't think I was going to you know, have to go through some of the, the other things that I, that I went through in other places. Um, you know, I didn't, I also couldn't have predicted that all these other movements happened. Um, you know, the, the, the dialogue has changed so much just in the last couple of years where we used to be whispering behind closed doors about things that were inappropriate or discriminatory going on. Like it's much more out in the open now. It's not as, not as much as, as, uh, it maybe could be everywhere. I mean, but um, but before it was nothing, right? Before it was like you maybe felt okay telling another person behind a closed door. Right. Um, you know, when I started working twenty years ago, that's what it was like. So we've made some progress. Yeah. <laughs> but um, joining but joining Khan Academy, I like it was very clear that Khan Academy was not going to be that sort of a place, and it was a priority for it not to be that sort of a place. And so I, I it was also a place where I was like, okay, I'm going to be able to sort of get my grounding, find my voice. Um, and kind of create more of the culture. I felt like I was going to have influence over the culture um, and that that was something that was interesting to the to the company. So that was another reason I joined. It's, just, it's so hard to change a culture in a place if it's not, you know, if it's not in the right starting point to begin with. So Absolutely. And I feel like Khan yeah. Academy really democratizes education. It makes it um, accessible um, wherein I, I feel like education in this country at least has been um, exclusive and expensive. And it's been, and if um, a really good equalizer is a place like Khan Academy. Um, and there are a lot of places online, but I feel like Khan Academy organizes their education extremely well. And you feel that cultural impact with it. Is there any place where um, there is a method or a way to use Khan Academy to its fullest. Um, how, how would you suggest if somebody wanted to really up their education game and do it on Khan Academy, what would, what would be the best way to do it? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, there are, um, there's a bunch of different ways that Khan, Khan Academy can be used, but, um, I think one of the things that I would want people to make sure that, you know, anybody's um, family in high school knows about is that the SAT part, the SAT prep part, um, as you're probably familiar, there used to be a bunch of sort of predatory companies that would like charge a lot of money to train people to do well in their SAT. But if you use this SAT product, uh, I can't remember what the number of hours is, but you will actually just improve your score on the SAT. So just if you've got anybody that's getting ready to take the SAT, just, just use that right. <laughs> because it's like, it's very clear. You just do this thing and then you're going to do better on your SAT. So why not do it? <laughs> yeah. um, and although like, you know, we, I'm sure we all wish that like in an ideal world, uh, we would think a little or kind of redesign the way that tests uh, work, you know, as part of the ecosystem of access to things like, um, you know, in the meantime, this is a gatekeeper. Let's just like get it out of the way for folks because, you know, the service is available and it's free and it'll just help you or help your family. So use that. Right. Um, and there's also like, excitingly, um, LSAT is new and that happened in June. 
Um, so, uh, you know, if you've got anybody that's, you know, thinking a little bit about law in this country and how to affect it, <laughs> who might be intimidated by the LSAT, that's like another great one that's recently released. And I would love to see, um, you know, more representation than people who are affecting policy, obviously. Absolutely. I think we all would. <laughs> um, and then I would say, you know, for the regular, for the rest of kind of the, the main bulk of Khan Academy, it's if you're studying for something and you're on a particular unit, just head over to that page and, you know, work your way through it. It'll kind of help you understand the progress that you're making um, to understand that unit. That's that's how that works right now. So um, the, the, that's like a little bit less specific because you might be just studying one particular unit and one grade. Um but uh, but each of the sort of unit level pages helps you kind of make progress and work through them right now. So that would be the other way to do it. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And I know for a lot of people, it just helps them if they're stuck somewhere to just watch a video of somebody explaining it to them. And that's that's a thing, too. <laughs> that's how it all started. But now there's much more that we have to offer. So, well, yeah, like I said, I think it's a game changer in in education especially when it seems like the education that one might need um has become so incredibly exclusive and expensive um i think that it really does democratize um how we learn and how we can achieve you know and and i, and I think it's just wonderful um uh maylee Koo, where can we find you where can where are you on on the on the socials if you are on the website if you are like where where can we learn more about you what you're doing how you're doing where can we see you DJ where can we see you dance what do we how do we get in touch with you um so uh, on Twitter uh, I'm Maylee just spelled M A Y L I so May mm -hmm. like the month L I um, that's probably the easiest um, so that's and then I've, you know, I think that's probably the easiest and most up-to-date thing. I have, I have like one, a sort of a one-page uh, sort of static written thing about me um, just at MeiliKu.com, but um, I don't really keep it up-to-date all that often and probably should. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think those are really the two. And we didn't talk about your DJ oh, wait, coalition, on. but... Yeah, yeah, that's true. I should say for DJ's stuff, um, you can follow us on La Pelanga. So that's L-A-P-E-L-A-N-G-A. -A um, and we're on Twitter and Instagram. And we also have a website, which is just lapelanga.com. Um, we might be playing at the Oakland Museum sometime, but I haven't confirmed when. So, um, But for anybody in the Oakland area, obviously, um, I imagine you already love the Oakland Museum. <laughs> so shout out to them. They're awesome. But that, shout out um, to and the museum. And I think they're probably one of my favorite places to play, especially um, their sort of Friday night events where it's family friendly because I love DJing for kids. That's dope. <laughs> yeah. Kids love kids love sukus. Yeah, they do. Like, I, and I I love sukus. So like me and the kids, man, I just get to play lots of sukus, and they're all on the dance floor. It's great. That's dope. <laughs> Well, I want to love. I would love to like jam with y'all if possible one of these days. Yes, that'd be amazing. I'd bring some stuff to hit on, and I, and I would love. Oh, to you know what? We should. So La Pelanga had had a pro podcast briefly, um, and we haven't been able. We had a bunch of babies born in the Pelanga family um, recently, which has made it a little harder to orchestrate. But we should probably just get you to bring some wax over, and we'll we'll, we'll just do another episode. Done love it i'm in. perfect i'm in yes yes well maylee it was wonderful 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 to talk to you um i went ben there was just so much stuff that i didn't even get to we, i'm just gonna have to we just have to do another one to talk all right to you again let's do it you it know? was like so much fun talking to you that i didn't even notice we really started having a conversation yeah, <laughs> that was yeah. awesome it was fantastic and i, and <laughs> I really awesome. love you being on the podcast thank you so so very much and um Everybody, I'm going to point everybody to, to you, Khan Academy, La Pelanga, everything that you're doing. I think you're a, a wonderful human being. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. I love you. I love you. Right. Okay. 
Thank you for listening to the Afrofuturist podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be a sponsor of the show, please contact me at ahmedbest at theafrofuturistpodcast.com or at ahmedbest on Twitter. If you have any ideas of any great guests that we would like to talk to on the Afrofuturist podcast, please contact me again at ahmedbest at theafrofuturistpodcast.com or contact me on Twitter at ahmedbest. Thank you all for listening again, and I'll see you next time.